Revelation 16, verses 12 through 21. Uh, It is our intention the next couple of weeks to take a break from the series of Revelation and to do a brief Advent uh, series. Uh, We'll be doing that uh, both morning and evening services next week and then the morning service on the 25th. Uh, But today we're going to finish this section of Revelation Uh, If you recall, uh, Revelation is made up of a series of uh, kind of cyclical sections, uh, and one of those sections is chapters 15 and 16, chapters uh, 15 and uh, 16. In fact, this is the fifth of the seven uh, sections, and so with this uh, scripture passage today, we finish this fifth section of Revelation. Let's... Now, hear God's word, and these are the pouring out of the sixth and the seventh bowls. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon... And out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This ends this reading uh, in God's holy word. Let's now look once again to the Lord uh, in prayer. Lord, our uh, God in heaven, we... Uh, give you thanks and we praise you for your holy word, especially 
as it tells us of these things that are yet to come. Pray, O Lord, that we would have ears that are attentive to the message that you have for us in your holy word. Give us believing hearts. Free us, O Lord, from the seduction of this world. Grant, O Lord, that we would have spirits that are alive to you and ever responsive to your holy word. Lord, meet with us now in this hour. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, perhaps, um, either children or adults, perhaps this coming uh, Friday evening, uh, you had a few hours and you decide uh, to sit down with a novel that contains some big, epic drama. Or perhaps you sit down with a movie uh, that is a movie of some uh, grand adventure story, perhaps either true or uh, fictional. Now, in that book or in that movie, when does the great battle or the greatest hurdle, the greatest obstacle, the greatest conflict usually take place? Is it at the very beginning? Is it partway through, halfway through? Or is it right before the end? Everything building towards it until that great battle takes place. And then all is resolved and the story ends. That's how it happens, right? It's the last choice. It's almost always right before the end. Isn't that interesting? I almost wonder if God has sort of hardwired us in a way to expect that that's how it takes place. Because do you know that in real life, in the drama of this world, and the great cosmic warfare that is going on between God and Satan, between the Lord's people and those that oppose the Lord, things are building and there is going to be a great battle. There is going to be a great conflict. And it's going to happen just towards the end before when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, returns. And that's really uh, what we're told about in this passage today and also really in many places throughout the rest of Scripture and throughout the book of Revelation. And so what I want to do today is to consider this, and, and let me just say it's important that we do consider this, uh, because if you are to have some understanding of what your place is in this story, of why we're here and what we're doing, it's good to get a picture of the whole, and especially when God tells us things that are yet to happen, it's good that we would pay attention and know these things, because it helps us to live with proper priorities now, okay? Well, I want us to consider this passage under two different headings as we look to these things. The first of these is the world's final battle, the world's final battle, and then the second thing is going to be this. It is going to be God's final wrath. The world's final battle followed by God's 
final wrath. Now, with the pouring out of this sixth bowl, we do see in verses 12 through 16, first of all, the world's final battle. And I've said that many of the things which Revelation describes are things which take place during the entire period between Christ's first and second comings. But here, with the pouring out of this six angels bowl, it seems that there is a certain heightening to the warfare, a certain intensity to the opposition that is going to be, or that is going to lead us right up to that moment when the Lord Jesus Christ returns as it speaks so clearly of that in verse 15. Now, the Bible does frequently describe a kind of heightening to the opposition uh, to Jesus Christ that comes as we move closer and closer uh, to the time of Christ's uh, return. Matthew 24, for example, speaks of how false Christs and false prophets are going to arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Or 2 Thessalonians 2. It speaks there of a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself, proclaiming himself to be God, who is going to arise before the appearance of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And we too have seen for example, in Revelation 11, 7 and 8, a kind of heightening of this conflict as we approach nearer the coming of Christ. And as we look at some of the chapters that are yet to come in Revelation, more and more attention is going to be focused on the events that immediately surround the coming of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now what is described for us here in Revelation 16 is like so much of the rest of the book of Revelation, uh, highly symbolic. It's highly symbolic. And so, for example, here it begins to speak about how this bowl is poured out on the great river uh, Euphrates. Now, the Euphrates was a very massive river, about 1,800 miles long, about 3,600 feet wide, about 30 feet deep at some places. It was a massive river uh, that protected Israel, as it were, from uh, the east, especially from the attacks of the dreaded Parthian uh, Empire. But here it describes this great Euphrates River as suddenly being dried up. Now, it kind of reminds us, doesn't it, of the Red Sea. Except for this, that when the Red Sea was dried up, it was the people of God who got to cross and escape out of Egypt. Here, when the Euphrates is dried up, it is to make way so the ungodly kings of the earth can attack and can assemble. And so here, this is again a kind of symbolic language that is speaking of a future time when, it, as it were, the ungodly rulers of ungodly society is going with more ease to attack uh, the people of God. Now as this begins to happen, who is behind 
the battle that is to come. Verse 13 makes it clear that it is that unholy trinity that was introduced to us back in chapters 12 and 13. First of all, it is the dragon who represents Satan. Then it speaks of the beast. This was the beast out of the sea, out of Revelation 13, that stood uh, for those uh, various institutions uh, that are powerfully opposed to God, especially ungodly government. And then it speaks of the false prophet. Uh, This, I won't take the time to show you, but is very clearly in Revelation, the same as the beast who is out of the earth, which represented, you might recall, those kind of ungodly ideologies and systems of thought. So the dragon who inspires both the beasts of ungodly uh, institutions and government and also ungodly systems of thought and ideologies now uh, become uh, very powerful and they assemble. And out of them, we read here, comes three unclean spirits out of their mouth like frogs. Okay, These are demons. Demonic spirits, it makes clear in verse 14. And the imagery here is is rather graphic. Again, uh, the imagery is that of the plagues that were sent upon uh, upon Egypt. Do you remember that plague of frogs? Oh, right? All those frogs, the slimy, uh, ugly frogs coming into your house and invading you and jumping into bed with you and down in your clothes and oh. It's just an awful image, right? And that's the image that's being used here. Of these ungodly, demonic spirits coming forth from Satan and from this world that are being sent forth into the world and that are having influence. It says that these spirits here are, um, these unclean spirits are performing signs, kinds of uh, false miracles, just as, Jesus himself forewarned in Matthew 24 and also in second Th- and, and as Paul did in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 uh, and 10. Uh, these are deceptive spirits. And they are, as it were, going abroad to the kings of the whole world, uniting them in battle against the living God. So what we have described here is a kind of United, worldwide opposition to the reign of God that, uh, 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 that begins to develop. It, it certainly includes uh, certain leaders of government, uh, but surely other influential figures as well, whether we would say leaders of business and commerce or icons of entertainment or controllers of mass media or experts of academia or prophets of false religion, and they are, as it were, uniting together in this kind of opposition to the living God. And with them are sheer billions of people who are following them. And the world, as it were, is becoming more brazen and proud in their forthright rejection of Jesus Christ. And they are desiring here to assemble together to do battle against Uh, the living God. What an image it is. So, this battle here 
that we're going to look at is described as Armageddon. Just a moment. It's not so much a battle of, it's certainly not just a battle of like Arabs versus Jews. It's not a battle of the East versus the West. But what it's speaking about here is the heightened opposition of this world against the living God and against the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the heightened opposition, the intense opposition of this world to the church of Jesus Christ. Let me just make application of this for a moment. And just to say this, that any view of the end times which says simply that the world is going to get better and better and kind of ease into God's eternal kingdom is one that is terribly mistaken. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. And so, though the gospel is going forth, though many peoples of the earth will be converted to faith in Jesus Christ, though we can rightly say that in this gospel age, the kingdom of God is growing and expanding, at the same time, the opposition of the unregenerate to the things of Christ will become more and more severe. And dear friends, we should not be surprised when we see this world proudly and defiantly rejecting the things of God. We see it all around us. Okay, just this last week, what? There was a bill which passed legitimizing homosexual marriage in our nation against the very design of God who said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. We live in a culture, do we not, uh, in which... uh, We are encouraged to accept transgenderism, which denies the very authority of God who created us either male or female. We live in a world, do we not, in which there is a heightened persecution against Christians in nations that are under Islamic authority and rule. More Christian martyrs in the last hundred years than in the history of the world before that. We live in a world, do we not, in which loving Christian evangelism is increasingly being labeled as hate speech. We live in a world in which there is the formation of of laws which seek to curtail liberty of conscience. We live in a world, do we not, in which increasingly there is the use of foul language and ungodly content in so-called entertainment. Friends, the list could go on and on, right? We see it around us. Now, now let me be clear. This does not mean uh, that we as Christians should just give up trying to be salt and light in this world. Not at all. We ought to seek to influence society for, for good. Christians should do that, and they have done that. Under the influence of Christianity, many good things are done in this world. 
Praise God for that. We ought to keep going in that. But what we are also saying is, dear friends, that at times, it must, or it must not surprise us when the forces of evil, like a, like a tidal wave or like, like a plague of frogs, okay, grows more and more powerful uh, and unstoppable. Friends, that's exactly what the Bible said is going to happen. So what will happen, though, when this world does unite in fierce battle against the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we can learn something from verse 16 there, where it calls, what it calls the place where they assemble. It says that they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon. Well, what does this word uh, mean? Well, uh, it's pretty clear what it means, actually. Uh, the word har is the Hebrew word for mount, and Megiddo was a fortress city that was overlooking the plain to the northwest of, of Jerusalem. So it refers to this mount of Megiddo. And it's a place that we found we find often in the, New Test- or in the Old Testament as a place where uh, significant battles uh, took place. Uh, it was here, across the valley from there in Mount Gilboa, where King Saul was slain by the Philistines. It was near here where Mount Carmel was, where Elijah conquered the false priests of of Baal. It was near here that Gideon blew his trumpet and overthrew the Midianites. It was a place uh, so known that Derek Thomas in his commentary says that it was the battlefield of Israel. So when you begin to think of where does a battle, a great monumental battle take place, it was in this place, the Mount of Megiddo. But especially... Any reader familiar with the Old Testament, when they hear this place, would have their minds go to Judges 4 and 5. Uh, Judges 4 and 5 uh, tell us of a time when uh, the Canaanites became very powerful under under their king, and they began to oppress the Israelite people. They would ravage the fields and plunder the crops of the Israelites And the Israelites became very scared of these uh, Canaanites. It seemed that they were unstoppable. It was a time in which uh, the people of God seemed helpless in the face of opposition of the ungodly. But it was then that the Lord raised up this woman named Deborah, who had the courage to go and tell Barak, up, for this is the day in which Jehovah is to deliver Sisera, into your power. Is it not he who has gone forth in front of you? And a battle that day was fought at Megiddo. And Israel's enemy was routed. And it was the living God himself who had come to the defense of his people. And so here it says, at this time when the enemies of God's people will seem very powerful, assembling together in opposition. And when all seems helpless, remember that this is the place, Armageddon. This is the place of God's 
victory. Uh, Hendrickson says it this way. He says that Armageddon is the symbol of every battle in which when the need is greatest and believers are oppressed, that the Lord suddenly reveals His power in the interest of His distressed people and defeats the enemy. Well, how shall this worldwide force be defeated? Well, verse 15 tells us very clearly how they shall be defeated. It says there, verse 15, Behold, Jesus says, I am coming like a thief. That's how. It is going to be by the sudden, uh, unexpected appearance of the Lord Jesus. You know, that imagery is one that Jesus frequently uses of His second coming children. When a thief comes, do they tell everyone ahead of time that they're coming? Do they announce their appearance? No, right? They try to be sneaky and sly. And there's a sense in which when Jesus Christ comes back, it's not going to be a time when everyone is looking for Him. But He is going to come suddenly. But the point is this, is that by His sudden appearing, He is going to win the victory over this world. And that is why, dear Christians, that our eyes chiefly need to be set upon the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is the victory ultimately going to be won? Well, it's ultimately going to be won, not through our doing, but ultimately on that day when on the clouds of heaven the Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear in tremendous glory and splendor. And that is why you and I need to be those who keep our eyes set upon the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember how it's described in Titus as uh, the life of believers is described? Titus chapter uh, 2 verses Uh, 11 and following, it tells us that uh, we are, uh, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is how we are to live, by faith in Christ in this present age. But where are our eyes to be set? What are we to be looking to? Where are we to draw our confidence from? Titus 2.13 Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great hope lies in that reality that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. Do you believe that? That He's going to appear on the clouds of heaven. That He's going to judge this world. That He's going to bring His own eternally into His presence. Friends, this is sure to happen. And it's sure to happen at the very moment when it seems that the enemy's strength is the greatest. Christ is going to appear. And this is one reason that you, you, must never determine who your allegiance is going to be, either to the world or to Christ, based on which seems to be most popular in this moment. 
There are a lot of people who say, well, we live in a post-Christian world. Christianity is passé. It's it's something that's old-fashioned. It's not the way things are headed. It's not the religion of the future. Dear friends, the Bible tells us that's not how we determine where our allegiance lies. Because at the very moment when opposition to Jesus Christ and His ways seems the greatest, Christ is going to appear in glory and splendor in the heavens. He's going to appear and we're going to see Him. And we're going to be with Him. And so, dear friends, we determine where our allegiance lies on the basis that He's the living God, that He's the only Savior And that in the end, he is going to be victorious. So we follow him. And so the mark of faith, one of the marks of faith, is to make sure continually that we are ready for his coming. Do you see that? Blessed is the one who stays awake, ready for him. Keeping his garments on. The garments of, as it were, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The garments of that armor of God, ready to do spiritual battle in this world. We are ever ready, ever eager, so that we might not go about naked, naked in our own self-righteousness, unprepared for the coming of our Lord. Are you one who is ready for His return? One of the marks of faith is that we are continually saying to ourselves and saying to other people, Jesus Christ is coming Every day we awake anticipating His return. We encourage one another when we're despairing and downcast. With this hope, we're reminding each other, Jesus Christ is going to return. He's coming back. That should be the great object of our longing and of our hope. It's what gives us courage to live for Jesus Christ now. To do what is sometimes hard and unpopular. It's because we know that our Lord is going to return. He's coming like a thief in the night. And dear friends, even when this world thinks that it is assembling in opposition to God at the height of its power, in reality, at that very moment, Christ is going to come and we'll see that in the providence and sovereignty of God, this world has assembled unto judgment. Oh dear friends, God's, or excuse me, the world's final battle. But let's move on now with the rest of our time to look now at verses 17 through 21 where it speaks here of God's final wrath because here it tells us what is going to happen at the time when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Verses 17 through 21, it's the pouring out of the seventh bowl. And this bowl, you'll notice, is poured into the air. The air, of course, speaks to now a judgment that is going to be universal and all-encompassing. The air is sometimes described as the place where Satan uh, rules, right? He is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians uh, 2 and verse 2. But now we see that it is God who is sovereign even over that, and He comes pouring this bowl out into the air, and it is going to be the bowl of the final wrath of God. At that time, a loud voice 
No doubt the voice of God Himself comes out of the temple and from the throne and He says, It is done. An extraordinary physical phenomena then signal the solemnity of that moment. There are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake. It kind of reminds you, doesn't it, of of Mount Sinai and of what happened when God descended to bring the law to His people. Except here, it is heightened all the more the Lord returning in final judgment and salvation. It's a time of great cataclysmic uh, events. The book of Haggai, uh, chapter 2 and verse 6, even looks ahead to this uh, time of, of shaking. Uh, Haggai 2 and verse uh, 6, where it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And with this then comes uh, the wrath of God. It is done, he says. All of those instances of his wrath that have been expressed throughout human history. Remember, those are the things that we looked at with the first five bowls of God's judgment a couple of weeks ago. That all of them now finally culminate in the day of Christ's return and the final outpouring of His wrath. Well, how is it that God's wrath is expressed on this day? Well, we're going to have much more to see in the chapters of Revelation that follow as so much of the theme is going to increasingly focus on the events surrounding this final battle and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we can say a few things even now out of verses 17 through 21 of how God's wrath is expressed on this on this final day. And the first thing is that, we can say, that we can say is that we see here God's wrath in the destruction of worldly society. God's wrath in the destruction of worldly society. The great city, verse 19, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. Here it speaks of Babylon as a, as a great city. And this is representing not just a single culture. Okay? It's not just saying we're to pinpoint that it's one particular culture in the history of man that is coming under judgment here, but rather... Babylon represents what we might call the city of man as a whole. Life and society, morals and lifestyle and institutions and civilization that is set up without reference to God and His ways. It's all of the political systems of this world and the economic systems, and the forms of entertainment, and the lifestyles that ignore God as people try to live their lives and make their way without reference to God in the world, as most people are doing. That's what's being described here as Babylon. Now, what is it that Babylon promises in this world? Does it not promise to its people a kind of Ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. Isn't that what people are chasing? 
Satisfaction in money. Satisfaction in toys. Satisfaction in pleasure. Satisfaction in popularity. Satisfaction in success. Now the book of Ecclesiastes, you remember we preached on, I preached on that a few years ago, and the book of Ecclesiastes says that all of it is vanity apart from God. That there is nothing ultimate, nothing ultimately satisfying in any mere thing of this world. God has made us for a better world. He's made us for something higher than created things. He's made us for a relationship with Himself. But here we are told that all of those things that people are chasing and building their lives upon someday are going to come under the absolute judgment of Almighty God. And it's going to collapse. Do you see the language? The great city split into three parts. I mean, again, think of just the the picture of a massive metropolis suddenly split, divided into various various parts. Cities falling. And them ultimately experiencing to its utmost dregs the cup of the wine of the fury of the wrath of God. Do you remember? Can you remember? That this is ultimately where worldly society is headed. So can I simply ask you, what are you living for? Are you living for, are you seeking to find satisfaction ultimately in those things which the Lord says are going to be no more, are ultimately coming under my wrath and my judgment? Or are you seeking your satisfaction in those things which will last, namely and especially in knowing the living God? God's wrath and the destruction of worldly society. Secondly, how is God's wrath seen? God's wrath is seen in the destruction of this present world. The destruction of this present world. We see this in verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were uh, to be found. Uh, Here, uh, we, we have examples of Uh, Things which are permanent, which seem to last in this present creation. Islands and especially mountains that are grand and majestic. And here it says that under the coming judgment of God, uh, these things are going to be uh, no more. It's a reminder, dear friends, that even this world in which we live is a world that has been affected by sin and is ultimately under sin's curse. And that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, this present world is going to undergo a kind of, a kind of destruction, even. Now, the Lord is doing it in order to bring about a redeemed creation what he describes as a new heavens and a new earth. But friends, this present world as we see it is not going to continue as is, but rather is going to come under uh, the judgment of God. And it's a reminder that no created thing in itself is ultimately eternal. Okay, Second uh, Peter 3, 12 and 13 help us here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 
and 13, where there it uh, speaks of how we are waiting for and hastening the coming day of of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there's going to be God's wrath in the destruction of this present world. But then thirdly, where is God's wrath going to be seen? God's wrath is going to be seen in the destruction of unrepentant sinners. God's wrath seen in the destruction of unrepentant sinners. We see this in verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. The image we're given here is that of a disaster of of extraordinary measure. I wonder if any of you want to be outside in any hailstorm. I don't. We had one of them that hit Mississippi, okay? Destroyed every car that was not in a garage. I mean, not destroyed, but every car had to go into body shops. Six months in a body shop, your car would sit there waiting to be repaired. The hail were that big, okay? That big, maybe. Here it's describing 100-pound pieces of hail out of the heavens. Now, is it an image? Is it a picture? Maybe so, but what it's describing, remember, the images point to things which are even greater than themselves. Here it's describing the real wrath of Almighty God that comes upon those who are unrepentant. And you might say, well, weren't these people given a chance to believe? The Bible makes clear here that they are, uh, that they are unrepentant even as the judgment itself is coming. They are deserving of the wrath of God. And it is a reminder that God's wrath is not just against societies and against His present creation, but is against individuals who have not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And when the Bible describes this kind of Destruction, you have to understand that it's not a destruction into non-existence. But the Bible makes clear that the wrath of God is everlastingly poured out upon the objects of that wrath. It's a picture of a coming final day of judgment. But then the question might be raised this, and it's the all-important question, is it not? Well, if this is what is going to happen on that day, is there any escaping the wrath of God? As He comes in all of His power and all of His fury, can any of us escape this wrath of God? Well, here I want to draw your attention to this simple phrase that we see in verse 17. When there we're told at this last day, the loud voice is coming from the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. Do you know that there is another time as well in the scriptures when the words, it is finished, were uttered? 
Now, the Greek words are slightly different. Here it is gagonin, and there it was tetelestai. But nonetheless, surely, John himself would have noticed the parallel. For it was the John who received this vision who wrote those words in John chapter 19 upon the lips of the Lord Jesus. For it was when the Lord Jesus Christ hung dying on a Roman cross, gasping for air, dying, that these words of absolute triumph were uttered from His lips when He said, It is finished. And what was it that was finished at that time? Well, what was finished was the wrath of Almighty God for our sins born by Him on the tree. And by that wrath-bearing work, all of our sins paid for in full so that they are no longer laid against us. Dear friends, the words, it is done or it is finished, are uttered in these two places. And for you, it is uttered in the one place or the other. Either, if your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then it means that Christ's words, it is finished on the cross, are for you. He bore the wrath. He suffered in your place. You are freed from the curse of God's law. You have the security of being eternally uh, blessed in His presence now and for eternity. It is finished. Because, dear friends, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, then when you are going to hear those words, it is finished, are going to be on that last day. When you shall in your own person experience the righteous wrath of God against you for your own sin. And what it describes here is something that will really, truly take place. Are you in Jesus Christ? Are you secure in Him, trusting in the only Savior from the wrath that is to come? Look to Jesus Christ. Children, are you looking to Jesus Christ? This world is coming to an end. This world, no matter how popular it seems today, dear friends, is not going to last forever. It is not ultimate. It does not triumph. The Bible makes it clear. Look to Jesus Christ. Be found in Him by faith. He is the only Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of your holy word. And we pray, Lord, now for the grace to hear it and to believe it and to live in light of these truths. Lord, our God, indeed, there is a heightening evil in the day in which we live. This great battle is being prepared for. But oh, how we bless you and thank you, O Lord, that the outcome is absolutely secure in the risen and victorious Jesus Christ. 
O Lord, grant us the faith to look to Him, to look to His coming, to look to His redeeming work, to trust in Him for the salvation of our sins and for life everlasting. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing now.